I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes $10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. It's finally here. The Silver Core Club member, who is the winner of the Bradley Professional Smoker, is announced in this episode. When you hear your name, don't delay in contacting our office. You have two weeks from the date the podcast goes live to claim your prize. Otherwise, another lucky winner will be drawn. So today I'm speaking with Tony Bernardo with the CSSA, that's the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony's been with them fighting for Canadians' rights, firearms owners' rights for, I guess, about 26 years and counting now, isn't it, Tony? Yeah, it's been a long time, Travis. Man. So specifically today, what I'd like to talk about is the CSSA, what you guys do, learn a little bit more about the organization, and be better educated on the order and council firearms prohibition that came through a few months ago. So what, why don't we start with the CSSA? Can you tell us a little bit of background about what the CSSA does and is and what you do with them? Okay, well, it, it's an old organization. Uh, we're one of the oldest firearms organizations in the country. Uh, we're celebrating our 61st year in operation oh. right now. Uh, we have a fairly large staff, uh, nine people, uh, coast to coast. And uh, we have as our motto, quiet confidence. Right. Okay, we don't walk around blowing our own horn, but we're getting the, the job done within the corridors of power. And, you know, many of the, the great successes that have happened in the past in terms of uh, rolling back C-68's provisions have been solely CSSAs. And things like, for example, the long gun registry. Uh, well, the CSSA wrote the bill that killed the long gun registry with Gary Breitkreitz. And, and as evidence of that, Gary, of course, is now a long-serving member of our board of directors. That's right, yes. Yeah, I mean, C-42 that eliminated the authorizations of transport and so many other things that were thorns in the, in the shoes of gun owners, that get, that, that bill was, was spawned by the CSSA. Um, so many things. Uh, it, it's just a long run of successes. Uh, many of the things that we have done in the past that have been so successful, people don't know about because I always describe the work we do as prophylactic, okay. where you can you can measure your success by the things that didn't happen. Yeah. Okay, because it's it's sort of like Men in Black, you know, yeah. where there's always an Archelian battle cruiser orbiting the Earth, waiting to destroy it. Okay, it's one of those things. It's always there. That the enemy never goes away. They, they lurk in the background, e even things like, for example, this week, we saw the lead issue arise again. Right Now, this is the sixth or seventh time that I can remember lead rearing its head coming out of Environment Canada. And the successive governments of the day, which, by the way, were not all conservative governments, slapping them back down saying, we're not dealing with this, okay? 
we're not going to go out there and tell people they can't shoot lead bullets. Is that what they're trying to do? Oh, yeah. They're trying to do a complete elimination on lead for all sporting uses. And that includes uh, fishing sinkers, jig heads, uh, bullets shot. You know, so you can expect that this, this harassment will continue until you, such a time that Environment Canada is totally purged of all the viral weenies. And by the way, that's not going to be in your lifetime or mine. So this is a, this is a fight that we're going to be fighting for the foreseeable future. And it's like playing whack-a-mole, because when you nail them on one spot, they pop up in another. And, uh, you know, we, we thought that the Liberals had put a, a stay on the lead issue for the last while. And uh, it, it seemed to be pretty good. And then what happened was along comes uh, a whole thing now on uh, fishing sinkers and jig heads back up one more time. Just this last week, another really? huge study. Yeah, they they did a study a few years back from a, a company in British Columbia, and, and now you, you can sort of see the foregoing conclusions of the study when the company is called Tox Ecology. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. Is there an agenda there? No, no, not no, no agenda. Gee, hardly anything, you know. And <laughs> and that was the company they hired to do the study. So this this sort of stuff is fermenting in the background, twenty four seven, always See, with, going on. With lead, I was always under the impression that it once it's oxidized, it's it's essentially inert. Well, that, you know, that's not an impression. That's the truth. Okay. You know, um, CSSA is a member of the executive committee of the World Forum on Shooting Activities, which is a international think tank uh, comprised of the major firearms organizations from all around the world. And uh, we, we do information symposiums. We've done two or three now on lead, uh, because lead, of course, in Europe is a much bigger issue than it is in North America. Right. And in Canada, it's even smaller than it is in the United States. Lead simply just doesn't raise its head here very often. But in Europe, it's a big deal. And we brought in some of the greatest and brightest minds on lead pollution and environmental toxicology on this stuff. Uh, and and uh, we listened to what they said. And what they said was exactly what you said. 24 hours after that lead bullet has had new um, lead exposed to its surface, the oxygen in the air mixed with a little bit of moisture hits the lead, forms an oxidizing layer over and encapsulates it. Right. Yeah, and we've actually had well testing where the well was not more than 40 or 50 feet away from a shooting range with zero lead contamination after years and years of shooting. And I guess the uh, the big problem with lead would be the remediation process when everyone gets concerned and wanting to dig it all up and you're scraping it up and removing that oxidization layer and you're actually making a bigger problem than than you had originally well that's right because as, as i say the lead's inert and you know all the lead that's used in the production of bullets is recycled there is there is no no virgin lead used in the production of bullets everything is recycled from car batteries huh yeah, so that's something that most people don't know. Most of the environmentalists don't know that, you know. <laughs> um, but you know, that was like the big, the big hue and cry when they shut down the last lead factory smelter in the United States a few years ago. It was, oh my God, where are we going to get our bullets from? Well, bullets have never come from those places. They've always come from recycling. Interesting. So, yeah, we're 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 doing our part. We're using the stuff again and again. 
and uh, you can mine the lead from a shooting range. There's no machines that can actually do that. Um, developed outside of Canada by the countries that uh, ha- had their backs to the wall on the lead issue. Right. But those technologies are available. You can mine lead. And now the great thing is lead's expensive. Yeah. So you can actually like mine it out of the ground and actually make a lot of money on it and then return it back in in the form of cement bullets. It just makes me anti's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, it's got to be difficult to be working in a prophylactic sense working sort of in the shadows to mitigate anything that comes up before it comes up. And then I get it. I mean, you can't be jumping up and shouting out all your successes. Otherwise you're not going to have those connections with the, uh, the politicians and the decision makers that uh, you're not going to have their trust essentially, but I guess it's got to be difficult to play that role. And then also still be able to show the members what you're doing. Yeah, it, it is. It can be very problematic, you know, because, Working with politicians is like being in a marriage where if you're going to do this smart, you give them the credit. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sure. You know, when when your family does something great, you tell your wife how wonderful she is, you know, (laughs) and you know, this, this is, this is just how the smart, the smart game is played. Right. You know, politicians have two jobs, essentially. Their first job is to get elected. Their second job is to get reelected. That's it. Everything that you do to further that makes them like you more. Mm-hmm. So when you can go and work with politicians, and there are many good politicians, contrary to popular belief, mm-hmm. uh, that's people who've been watching too much Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are good politicians out there, people who try very hard. They do their best to do their the good things for the country. When you can get those people on side and you can accomplish something, You'd be an absolute idiot not to give them the credit for that. Absolutely. Right, which means you can't take the credit for that. But then again, in this job, you don't want to. Mm. Okay, because if you do it, it just attracts fire. That's it. Yeah, the the enemies that we have will accuse us of manipulating government, which, by the way, we never do. We never do. We don't need to. The truth is on our side. That's right. Right, so we, we just can can make things apparent to politicians that this is the truth of the matter. We can even prove everything we say. It's sort of a losing battle, though. You're never going to win over the naysayers. And there's always going to be people who are going to be pointing fingers and uh, making allegations. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the bottom line here is are, are we trying to do what's best for the CSSA or are we trying to do what's best for gun owners of Canada? Well, you guys have definitely celebrated a lot of wins for gun owners in Canada. And we have. Oh, yeah. And right now, tell me, this order in council firearms prohibition that came through, is this the first time that an order in council has been used for firearms prohibitions? Nope. It isn't. It's been used a couple of times. Okay. Um, Well, first of all, prior to Bill C-68 implementation, the entire list of prohibited firearms we have right now, which is uh, pro- Prohibition Order uh, 10 and 11, I believe. Okay. Uh, those those pro- Prohibition Orders, I may have those numbers wrong, but those Prohibition Orders form the basis for Sections 12.3, 12.4, 12.5. Mm. Okay. So 
those prohibition orders were originally done under the Kim Campbell administration, yes, a conservative administration, and they were done by order and counsel. Now, when C-68 was written, order and counsel was written into the provisions of the bill as a means of prohibiting firearms. This is really interesting because ordering counsel is not new. It's it's one of the fundamental essences of a democratic government. Right. And it's designed to streamline the government. The purposes for ordering counsel are for any item that is inconsequential, i.e., we're going to change the color of the paper from beige to taupe. Sure. Okay. Nobody cares. Just do it, you know. The second one is for anything that uh, is absolutely time sensitive. Like the Japanese have just landed on Vancouver Island and we need to move the army now. Right. Okay? Right. Time sensitive. Very time sensitive. And then C-68 created a third use for ordering council. And that was to ban guns. It had never been done like that. You know, Kim, Kim Campbell had gone way out on a limb to use ordering counsel to, to create those early prohibition lists. And C-68 ratified the minister's ability to use ordering counsel to continue to do that. Now, when the uh, Harper conservatives were in power, all oh, those were happy days, weren't they? Remember when adults were in our country? It was great. <laughs> okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> um Stephen Blaney, who was the public safety minister at the time, yes. an absolutely awesome good guy. I mean, yes. best public safety minister I ever worked under. Yeah. And Stephen Blaney said, we're going to even this playing field. Instead of being able to use ordering counsel to restrict or prohibit firearms, well, you know what? We're going to add one more category into that. We're going to be able to use it to non-restrict firearms. Good. Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense. Well, yeah. If you're going to get to go two out of the three, you might as well do the third one too, right? Sure. Right. And then immediately he used that ordering council power to take the CZ-858, which the uh, RCMP had come up with this um, very, very loosey-goosey interpretation that somehow this was a converted full auto. Right. And we can get into detail on that if you want to, but it's kind of irrelevant to the story. Mm-hmm. And and to the Swiss Arms rifles, the Swiss Arms Classic Series rifles, the RCMP had determined that they were actually a variant of a SIG rifle, but they weren't a variant of, according to the company that made the guns, and uh, decided that they were and went ahead and, and prohibited them too. Well, Stephen Blaney said, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, like, rather than mess around slapping you guys until you see the error of your evil ways, we're just going to use an ordering council and reverse your decision. Poof, done. Have a great day. Right. Right. So uh, that was that was done and accomplished, and those two firearms came off of the prohibitive list. But you know the horsemen, they never, ever changed the FRTs. What it said was that the... CZ-858 was a 12-3, non-restricted. What? <laughs> well, Stephen Blaney had made it a non-restricted firearm. A 12-3, uh, non-restricted. But, but, but the 
RCMP refused to back down on their opinion and said it was a 12-3, but non-restricted. Like, just just wild. They just never quit. There's so much ego involved in that, too. Oh, yeah, so much. So, yeah, for sure. Murray Smith, who was the head of the lab at the time. I um, remember he, Murray. He, yeah, Murray was really bent. Well, you know, Murray's he's now retired, right? I actually did a um, I was a subject matter expert in a um, court case, and Murray was uh, on the other side. I get to speak first, so I got to sit in and listen to him speak. It was uh, it was interesting. Well, he, he's a knowledgeable man, and there's no question about it. But uh, while he really really likes guns, he also believes he's the only one who should actually be allowed to own them. Mm. And uh, Murray's now retired, and he's left the, uh, the the Canada Firearms Program Labs, and is now working as a consultant to the PMO. Interesting. <laughs> Funny how that I works, wonder, eh? I wonder how that happens. Hey, I mm-hmm. wonder how that happens. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that ordering council is used in that. And, and it's been used a couple of other minor times. Um, but most of the prohibitions that happened in the years from C-68 to now, most of them were RCMP reclassifications. Right. Right, where they said, oh, whoopsies, we know it's been non-restricted for 15 years, but we made a boo-boo, so now we're going to make a prohibited boom gun, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, along with such silliness as things like that little Walter G22 plastic stock mm-hmm. that they decided they'd ban, and of course, the uh, that 22 rifle, the Blaze, the Mossberg Blaze, Yep. where you had the, the Blaze, and you had the Blaze 47, and the Blaze rifles were absolutely identical identical except one had a yucky plastic stock that was sort of like a uh, regular rifle stock and the other one had a yucky plastic stock that from 200 yards away somebody might mistake for an ak-47 that's evil And, and well it's evil just in the way it looks so they declared the blaze 47 to be a uh, variant of an AK-47, then they banned it. But the Blaze is still available for sale in Canada, and I know this will stun you, but the Blaze 47 stock is available as an aftermarket item. (laughs) So you can take your Blaze, and you can put it in a Blaze 47 stock, and it's identical to a Blaze 47, but it's not prohibited. You know, I've given up (laughs) trying to make sense out of the rationale behind a lot of these laws that come through, having operated the business, I guess 2003 is when I incorporated Silver Core, and we've been dealing with the RCMP firearms program and all of the different shenanigans and personalities that come through there. It's uh, to try and actually put some logic and sense behind it. I, I think you're, it's a losing battle personally. Yeah. It, it, pretty difficult to rationalize how they view things. I know that Mr. Smith has testified in court what his version of a variant is. And mm-hmm. I know that, that this, this is a, a, a revelation to most of your listeners, because most of them who've ever seen any of this you know, variant stuff is like, how could a two-shot, bolt-action shotgun be a variant of an, an AR-15? And yet they did that to the Adler shotgun, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Right. And was that based shot- on Mr. Smith's? It, it's Mr. Smith's ruling. It's, it's based on uh, yeah, paragraph 87 of the order in council, which is the AR-15 section. 
Mm-hmm. And the Adler has been prohibited as a variant of the AR-15, despite it being a two-shot bolt-action shotgun. And the reason is, is because it has a carry handle. Mm-hmm. And the reasoning that Mr. Smith always used was that if the parent firearm had never existed, then the child firearm would not exist now. That's a bit of a leap. Well, yeah, because the Blaze 47, which is a blowback 22 rimfire um, that somebody put a crappy plastic stock on that vaguely looks like an AK, that AK stock would have never existed had not a real AK have happened in the <laughs> first place. Now, never mind the fact that the evolution of firearms is based upon function and ergonomics. And since human beings have essentially remained unchanged for a long, long time, they're bound to hone it down to pistol grips and elevated sights and straight back recoil and all that kind of stuff. It was guaranteed to happen simply from the evolution of the ergonomics of the firearm. So you are preemptively stopping any kind of development because... As developments become more and more common, guns start to look more and more like each other. Well, maybe that's the end goal. Well, yeah, of course it is. (laughs) Come on. At the end of the day, they want to ban them all. I don't know if they... They want to regulate them all very tightly because if they're all banned, what are they going to do for work, right? They keep crying for more funding. Well, don't worry, they'll find something to do because yeah, exactly. the criminal's guns won't get banned. Well, let's talk about the order in council. I, I wouldn't right. mind getting a better idea of of the newly prohibited firearms and and maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel if the CSSA has any ideas or thoughts on uh, something that's a bit more positive that we can put our energies towards to come up with something that makes more sense in, in this prohibition. Okay, well, I've got a 100% cure for the prohibition. Okay. Okay, and it's actually really, really simple. But change the government. Yeah, well, and that's it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's where the change is going to happen. Right. Every, every real change is going to come from a change of government. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, the conservatives are currently in a leadership race, as you know. Mm-hmm. All four of the people in the Conservative Party have pledged to undo everything the Liberals have done on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some of the ones who know a fair bit about firearms and firearms regulations um, have pledged to do much, much more, much more. So things like the simplified classification system, which exists in conservative policy right now, And if you go back to the original policy documents, you'll see the simplified classification was written by (coughs) uh, the CSSA. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And simplified classification was designed to uh, keep Canadians safe, first and foremost, but also take this ridiculous, silly classification system that owners police, judges, prosecutors, no one can figure out how this works. Right. Right, which is why virtually every police service now has its own dedicated firearms officers that are specially trained just in figuring out what the gun is and and what classification it belongs to. 
And the difficult part is, is then once they figure that out, they'll hold the common citizen to that highest standard. When it took somebody with specialist courses and a background in the laws and firearms identification to be able to arrive at that conclusion. Absolutely. The common firearms owner is expected to know this. You're a very knowledgeable guy on firearms issues and firearms, and you don't know everything there is to know on this. No. I've been doing this for a living for over 25 years, and I don't know everything there is to know on this. Right. And I can't think of anybody who does, because even people like Murray Smith have been surprised in court more than once. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a, a moving target, which is really difficult. Now, if you're a copper and you're out there trying to do your job and you come across a gun and you want to find out if that gun is a restricted or prohibited firearm, if you've got the simplified classification in your holster, you have the ability to do this with a tape measure. Right. It's so easy to do. Any police officer can figure this out. You know, it, it retains the same classifications that we have now, as in um, restricted, prohibited, and non-restricted. Hmm. But the definitions of what those things mean completely change. And it's based Prohibi- on length. Uh, well, not just length, but function too, okay? okay. So a, a firearm that is prohibited would be a firearm, A, that is full auto, or B, one that is reduced to less than 26 inches, that's 660 millimeters, Mm -hmm. um, by means of sawing or cutting. Mm. In other words, somebody's cut down a gun. Right. Okay, very, very few people cut down a gun for good purposes. So it was a a, a gimme that, that we did, you know, for our friends in law enforcement. And so... It's full auto and guns cut down below 26 inches. That's that's it. That's what's prohibited. So when you go to restricted, it's any firearm that is a handgun. And, of course, that's using the existing Canadian definition of a handgun, which is a firearm designed to be operated by the action of one hand. Right. Okay. Any firearm that is a handgun or any firearm reduced to less than 26 inches by means of folding, telescoping, or other mechanical means. So if you've got a gun that folds up to be shorter than 26 inches, it's restricted. It's a handgun. Interesting. Okay, and everything else on the list is non-restricted because it's not full auto. It's not easily concealable. It's not a handgun. It's not sawed off. And this is so easy that anybody can figure out what category the gun's in by simply A, looking at it, and B, pulling out a tape measure. It'll be interesting to see if that ever makes it into our into our laws. That would be uh, it would be nice to have something that's easier to work with. That's for sure. Well, for sure. And you know the the uh, conservatives. Um, this has been part of the official party policy for four years now, and uh, it's it's enshrined right in their party policy. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole and Derek Sloan have all pledged to implement it. So, you know, the, this, this, is, this is a very, very good turn of events for us. The other thing that, that we've been advocating for for quite a long time, and, and it's been picked up by quite a few members of the Conservative Party, including some of their policy stuff, is um, a plain language rewrite. Okay. Now, you know, the, one of the biggest problems with the, the Firearms Act is nobody can understand what it means. Right. It's got to be simplified. 
Right. And it's being cherry picked and things are being interpreted in, in ways that I don't necessarily believe were in the spirit of the law that they were, they were originally drafted. Right. Mind you, right. we kind of have to watch out on those plain English ones, like the plain English, sorry, the, uh, the common sense licensing, the back in 2015, when they're talking about that and they did away with the paper form ATTs, they right. also did away with challenges for fire and safety course training. Yes, that, but that, those two things were not related to each other. Right. Right. And, and the challenges, the, the uh, doing away with the challenges, like, as I said, I was in the room when all that stuff was going on. And, and it came about um, because of massive numbers of complaints from instructors across the country. Interesting. Because they were having people that were, um, uh, shall we say, fudging the challenges. And right. they, they'd get somebody in and they'd basically do the exam for them. And uh, those those instructors were defrocked, and I even think a couple of them were charged. Good. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, when, when they asked me my, my opinion of it at the time, I said, cook them. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have a culture of safety that we've spent hundreds of years developing. We're proud of it. So we don't want anybody messing with that. With the OIC, we've got a little bit of a um, a grace period now, don't we? Two years. Two years. Now, here's a question. If somebody's in possession of a newly prohibited firearm, they've got mm -hmm. two years to remain in possession of that firearm without facing any criminal consequences. Right. What if they wanted to transport it? Because I don't think they are being... I don't think that's allowed, is it? Um, it is for a couple of different purposes. Okay, you can transport it to a gunsmith for the purpose of deactivation. Sure. You can transport it to the police for the purpose the of destruction. Right. And those already but, existed in the in the criminal code. That's right. That's right. The, the but, other one that is really, really crazy is the one we've had problems with. There's no provision to transport the firearm for the purposes of changing residences. And that's where I was going. I got a phone call yesterday from someone who works with us, and he also works with Western Canada's largest supplier for uh, law enforcement supplies. And he says, I'm a little confused. I bought a new place. I'm moving. I don't think I'm allowed to do this. I phoned up the firearm center and they said, ah, oh, you're covered. It's okay. He said, well, okay. Can you give that to me in writing? Nope. <laughs> so he phones me and says, do you know anything on this? I'm like, you sure. know, I don't. I mean, No, I do. I, I, I mean, we had one of the first cases of this was a CSSA member. Okay. And we, we actually had some experience with this because way back, way back in C68's days, when the new laws were implemented, they had no ATT for the purposes of changing residences. Right. And you won't believe who the first person to challenge that was. You guys. <laughs> no, it was me specifically. That was you. I was, it was me personally. I, 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 <laughs> I, I had to move just a few days after it was implemented. <laughs> and, and so I, I called up the, uh, the chief lawyer for the firearm center who was 
truly a wonderful person. Okay, very very honest, straight shooter, no pun intended, yeah. um, and is now in a position that is really really lofty. And we're not going to go there right now, but more offline, I can talk more to you about who this person is. You'll recognize sure. them right away. And I called her up and I said, "Okay, I have a problem. I have." Restricted and prohibited firearms. I have to change residences. I can't leave them at the old residence because the new people are taking possession and I can't leave them with them. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for them. So can you give me an ATT? And they said, no, there's no provision. I said, okay, well, then here's what we're going to do. I'm going to move the firearms illegally because I have no choice. I can't leave them with these people who are not entitled to possess them. So I'm going to move the firearms illegally, and when I arrive at my new house, I'm going to phone the local police, inform them I've just transported all these firearms illegally, insist they come over and charge me, and you will be the very first person I subpoena. <laughs> and she took a big gulp and said, well, I'll see what I can do. And about 25 minutes later, my fax machine lit up, and out came an ATT. <laughs> well, the, because, there's that way to do it, definitely. Well, what happened with this was when we had our member phone and say, like, I'm supposed to move in, in four days, and they're telling me they won't give me an ATT. What do I do? And I, I repeated the story to him. I said, you have to move them. You have no choice. That's right. You, you have to move them. And so the, the gentleman got back to the, the firearm center and explained this to them, and we, we did some work with a couple of the CFOs that, of course, are the ones who actually issue the ATTs. And um, they just said, you know what? We're going to issue the ATTs, period. We can issue an ATT for any good and sufficient reason. Well, this is a good and sufficient reason. There we go. We're, we're doing it. We're taking it on our own responsibility. And to heck with what the order in council says. We're going to issue the ATTs so people don't find themselves in this position of jeopardy. So that's the advice that I should pass on to the uh, the other individual here who's, who's moving as we speak. Right, right, absolutely. They, they, what could they do to him? Well, yeah, that's it exactly. What what I said to him, and I said, said, tell them you're moving it and have them tell you you can't, essentially. Seek tacit approval. Right. But I like well, your the, approach of going one step further. Well, you, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, now, uh, and I've seen from several of our members who've called me up and said, you know, you were having problems with this. Well, here's what they did with me. And now that you phone in and they just give you the ATT. They're not, they're not even second guessing. Okay. I, they, they've been told by the powers higher above them for, you know, for God's sake, just give them the ATT. <laughs> I mean, it just makes sense. Come on. Well, yeah. And, and it is symptomatic though of how badly this, um, ordering council was written. What can people do right now? Obviously, we can encourage them to vote for the Conservative Party. But there's a time period between now and then. Now, the CSSA, you guys are obviously on it and working on it. You've got a couple of uh, endeavors that you're working on at the moment, aren't you? Yes, sir. Is there anything you can talk on? Sure, absolutely. We are backing two court cases. Right. Okay, the court cases are the Civil Little Gets Judicial Review which is being conducted by a gentleman named Arkady Bushalov out of Toronto. Arkady is not specifically a firearms lawyer. He's a litigation lawyer. 
He has a couple of stunning successes to his name and has taken on this job on behalf of the nine civil litigants and individuals yeah. who are, are doing this. This is interesting because this is the only case that's composed of individuals. Okay. So that's, that's one of the reasons we back that. The other one is the KKS Tactical uh, from Prince George, British Columbia. And uh, Solomon Friedman is conducting that. Solomon's a, a, a old-time experienced gun lawyer. He's, he's quite talented. Yep. And the KKS Tactical was the first one out of the gate of the business lawyers, uh, the business suits. So we decided to back one for the industry, one for our individuals. And that's why we went the route we did. And these guys have GoFundMe pages set up too, don't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you can even donate to either one of those simply by going on the CSSA website. Right there on the front page, donate to the challenges. Click it, secure. You can use credit cards. You can do anything like that. Just straight in. It's all secure stuff. And uh, you can make a donation right to the suits. Um, they're both based on Section 117.15 of the Firearms Act. Okay. One seventeen fifteen is important. Um, we we recognize that very early in the game as being what we considered to be the uh, the, the gold standard as how you could beat this. Right. One seventeen fifteen basically says that the minister can make an opinion as to whether or not the firearms are suitable for sporting use. Or hunting in Canada. Right. Right. This is being done through ordering council, which bypasses the parliamentary process. Well, years and years ago, the courts ruled that if the government was to do things like this through ordering council, because it has a bypass on parliamentary scrutiny, that the courts would provide scrutiny. Mm. And they ruled that many years ago that the minister, yes, is entitled to his opinion, but it has to be a reasonable opinion. Right. The discretion right. isn't unfettered. Right. Now, I can tell you from experience that this is not a reasonable opinion. Mm -hmm. For them, them to tell me that my Mini 30 is not suitable for shooting deer when I've done about 15 deer with the thing. Mm -hmm. um, is an unreasonable opinion mm -hmm. because I know that in the areas I hunt, my mini 30 goes bang flop and I have venison in my freezer <laughs> and I'm pretty happy with that. So I don't think the minister's opinion is a reasonable one. You've got the government of Canada for 40 years issuing authorizations to transport AR-15 firearms all over the country for the purposes of sporting competitions. That's right. And now you're telling me that it's no no good for sporting competitions? Well, where the hell have you been for 40 years? <laughs> These things are all true. You know, the, the fact is that the AR-15 is eminently suitable for hunting. It's the most common new hunting firearm in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can 350 million Americans be that wrong? Well, there's an awful lot of venison piling up and, and, and wild pork, you know, based upon the fact that those firearms are suitable for hunting. Of course they are. We all know that. But the government's opinion is full of it. And 
117.15 is actionable and it's challengeable. Is 117.15 what was employed for the 12.6 firearms? No. No. Um, there was mention to it, but way back in the years of the 12.6, it, it, was, uh, it was part of that. Okay, But most of it had to do with retroactive law. Hmm. Okay, from the period of 95 to 98, there was about two and a half years there, where C-68 had become law, but it had not come into force yet. Right. And for that two and a half year period, people were able to legally go out and buy 12 sexes. When right. the law came into force, it contained a retroactive date that was backdated two and a half years. And we, we equated this to the court as being, you're driving down the road, and the speed limit's 80K. Well, next week, they make it 60K, and they give you a ticket, because last week you were doing 80K. Right. Right? Retroactive law. Sadly, the, the judge didn't see it that way. We lost the case. But um, that that was the main focus But they made exceptions for short barrel, 25, 32 caliber handguns for sporting purposes. Because I believe at the time um, they, that the they, Canadian Olympic team was using high-end 32 32s. Yeah. Yes. What 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 they made was an exemplist. Mm. Okay, specifically for the Olympic people. Now, we tried to get them to adopt the ISSF right. standard. Okay, ISSF standard was that there was a box, a wooden box, and if the pistol would sit inside that wooden box, it was exempt. So we thought, hey, I got a couple of 380s that will sit inside that wooden box. No sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, they didn't see it our way, and uh, they they went with an actual list of firearms that are exempt from that, uh, basically because the 32 caliber Olympic pistols. I'm going to take a real quick moment here, quick segue. Uh, When the ordering council dropped and the firearms prohibition came in there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of upset and we got a lot of phone calls to our office from members and the general public asking what do we know about this and everyone was just scrambling and trying to learn and some had a little bit of insight but we were doing what we could talking with everybody by the end of the day we got one interesting call guy by the name of wade bradley he owns bradley smokers he called up and he was livid he says, look, at I, I don't know. I'm taking off to my cabin. I'm going to do some fishing. I need to cool off here. But I tell you what, I really like what Silver Corps has been doing for the firearms community. Wade's a, fi- Wade's a Silver Corps member as well. He says, I'd like to donate, give away one free professional P10 Bradley smoker. I'd like to give all the members discounts on Bradley smokers for the month of July. He did that. And... Month of July is now over, and it's time to announce the winner. So the winner is going to be a fellow out of High River, Alberta, by the name of Justin Jameson. So Justin, you can contact the Silver Corps office to arrange for the delivery of your brand new Bradley P10 smoker. And everybody else out there, just know that the boys and girls are Bradley smokers. They're run by hunters and anglers and firearms enthusiasts. They donate to our gun orgs. They support our shared endeavor. And if you're moved by their generosity, please consider letting them know in any way you feel is appropriate. So 
we got the winner announced there. So we got that in there. I'm not going to put that in the show notes. So they actually have to listen to get that. Sorry for um, taking you off track there, Tony, but it was somewhat of a segue that did tie in because it was directly because of this order in council that people are stepping up and saying, what can we do? How can we raise awareness? Absolutely. And you know, Travis, it's important that we still have fun. So yeah, having having somebody win a new Bradley Smoker, it doesn't get much better than that. No, the thing's fantastic. They make a great product, absolutely. You know, I've been I've been using them for years. You know, I my wife's a chef by trade, professional chef, and uh, that's that's what we use. So um how, how do you stay so skinny? I'm working hard to try and do that. It's it's not easy, I'll tell you that much. Well, you could have said she's a vegan chef. <laughs> no, she isn't. She's a hunter. Oh, bless her heart. Yes. So with the, uh, we've got two years, obviously best case is uh, a new government coming through. Yeah. One that's more sympathetic. But there's going to be little things that pop up, like people who don't know, like the fellow who contacted me yesterday, he just contacted the BC CFO and they gave him the, the nope, you're not getting an ATT and just go away essentially. Right. Can people call up the CSSA if they've got questions? Absolutely. Uh, 1-888-873-4339. There it is. And you guys will be able to point them in the right direction anyways. And they might even want to consider joining the organization. Absolutely. We, we help people every day and uh, not all of them are members. You know, we, we help people even when they're not members in the hopes that maybe they'll, they'll realize the valuable service that we provide and they, they'll become members of the right. association. Like every other not-for-profit association, we are constantly, uh, you know, recruiting. We, we are right now the, the largest firearms organization in Canada. And uh, we have uh, all of our memberships are full memberships. We don't have things like associate memberships. They're all full memberships. And right. we have 37,000 full memberships in Canada. So that's, cool. that's pretty big. We're, we're a good-sized organization, uh, which is, like I say, how we have nine staff. So. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so those funds are all going towards uh, legal actions and fighting for the rights of firearms owners, or your nine staff well, are getting very well paid. That, that, no, <laughs> no, we're, we're a not-for-profit association. We are not very well paid. We, we've got, you know, four office staff that do absolutely nothing but administer memberships. Right. You know, it's a big association, and, uh, you know, we, we've kept the cost of the association down. A membership is $45 a year. That includes uh, Caliber Magazine. It includes a weekly newsletter plus any special bulletins. It includes free classified advertising coast-to-coast amongst the members. That's right. And Yeah, and, and, I mean, there's lots and lots of benefits that you get for your 45 bucks. Yeah, that advertising, that's a, uh, and that's basically like a buy-in sell. But, it, it is, and it's, and it's fantastic. Most of the ads sell in the 48 hours. And these are all people who are members of the CSSA, so there's a level of vetting that takes place there. Like, obviously, you can't yep. vet everybody that comes through. If someone wants to scam, that's they'll do that, but right. there's a yep. higher level of trust. Absolutely, because, you see, the, the people who are subscribed to us are, are by, you know, huge amounts, PAL owners. And, 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 and PAL holders, they, they don't, they don't tend to scam people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be PAL holders very long, right? right? Um, the people who are placing the ads are all CSSA 
same members. You have to be a member to place an ad. Right. You don't have to be a member to buy something, but you have to be a member to post it. Mm-hmm. So you know the people who are posting that are above board, the people who are buying that are above board. We've never had an incident, not one. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's a great system. It's a great system. We we try very hard to make sure that it's easy to use and effective. But th- there's lots of benefits, and uh, not the least of which is uh, you know, free legal advice. Yeah, that's quite helpful. So you, you've it, got it uh, lawyers on retainer that are able yes. to give out that free advice. And I guess some of it's probably going to be boilerplate because the same questions come up. Absolutely. The same questions coming up for the last 25 years, you know. Yeah. So, you know, most of the questions we don't need to refer to a lawyer because we've already got the answers. Right. You know, we've dealt with most of these questions uh, a thousand times. The, the, one of the biggest ones we get is what happens to people who uh, inherit estates. Right. Okay. And that's one of the biggest questions? Yeah, it's one of the biggest ones we get. Like every week, somebody is calling about what do we do? How do we deal with us? And, I mean, this has been so boilerplate for us. We've given it the advice like thousands of times. And so we know exactly, contact this person, contact this person, do this, do that, you know. Yeah. And here's what you'll need for this and, you know, things like that. But yeah, it, it it's good. We perform a very valuable service to gun owners, and in fact, many of the services we perform are ones that our damn government should be performing. Uh huh. Tell me uh-huh. about that one. Right, but and you know they they keep the the gun owning public in the dark. They're still keeping the gun owning public in the dark. The ordering council contains some enormous nastiness in there. And we've tried to make people aware of, of the, the things that are in there. Um, the, there's two provisions in the order of council that people should know about. One of which is that the ordering council prohibits any firearm, any firearm, with a bore diameter of 20 millimeter or greater. Right. All right. So every single 12 gauge shotgun that has a removable choke is over 20 millimeters in bore. Isn't it interesting that they can try and backpedal and say, oh, but not that? Yeah, well, when we asked them to backpedal and say, oh, but not that, they came up with some cockamamie BS measuring system that the RCMP invented on the fly that morning. and They put it up on a Facebook page, and Bill Blair put out a tweet saying, oh, yeah, but, but not that. And all of a sudden, an RCMP Facebook page they wrote on the fly that morning, and Bill Blair's tweet somehow manages to contradict criminal code law. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, but, you know, gun owners are an optimistic lot. And, you know, they, they looked at, well, the minister says it doesn't mean shotguns. Well, you know what? If it doesn't mean shotguns, we said to the minister, can you put two little words in the ordering council? Except shotguns. 20 millimeter bore or larger, except shotguns. That would be easy. It sure is. You could even say except 12 and 10 gauge shotguns. Mm-hmm. And they refuse to do that. What does that tell you, Travis? Well, there's a reason why. You know, there's one firearms officer. I remember this one. I don't know if I should tell this story, but I'm going to. Okay. Uh, um, Normative process, I think is what he called it. 
Have you heard of this? No, go ahead. Okay, so we were having a business inspection, and for years, the firearms program was having difficulties coming up with an a palatable decision on what a classification of some firearms are. So we've got active firearms, they go bang. We've got deactivated firearms. We have disabled firearms. We have destroyed firearms. These are all things that the firearms center has come up and said, or the firearms program, as they like to be called, has come up and said, these are different classifications of firearms. So our active firearm is registered and has carries a weight of law behind it. Your disabled firearm, and this is something that safety course instructors across the country will use. They've got the chambers milled out. They've got firing pin holes drilled out, central pieces destroyed and removed. And they said, well, it doesn't meet our classification for deactivation, which is a guideline at best. So we'll call it disabled. And it carries with it the same weight as these active firearms. So we've got a bunch of these firearms and some of them were purchased before a certain date. Some were after it on their website. They have this nice little article and it says any firearms that were considered inert deactivated before this date, they stay that way unless of course we deem it otherwise. And anyone after that is going to have to meet these new guidelines. So I was confused. I said, I've got these two firearms. They're identical to each other in every single way. One we got prior to that date, one we got af after that date. The chambers are milled out, the slide rails are destroyed on the things. I mean, they're, they're really butchered up. And I said, you guys tell me, if you want to have it registered, go ahead. You got the information, register it. If you want it, call it as a deactivated as you have in the past, fair enough, you tell me. And they wouldn't. Rather, they wanted to push that on to me and they say, you have to, to make that decision and you have to go ahead. And I'm sitting here thinking like, I mean, you've got the information, you've got the serial numbers, make model, everything else. It's simple. If it's got to be registered, register it. So I was getting a little bit concerned about the process and I contacted our MP at the time and local MP was Carrie Lynn Findlay and she calls, calls up uh, Minister Blaney. I talk with Minister Blaney. They say, huh, it is a bit of a head scratcher. Tell you what, tell them we're discussing this at the ministerial level. We'll come back. We'll let them know, right? We'll, we'll see kind of what's going on. So I presented all the information that they still were scratching their heads. Firearms officer comes in and I explain that to them. And he turns at me and he says, and I'm quoting him, fuck Carrie Lynn Findlay, fuck Minister Blaney. They don't make the laws. We do. And I said, oh, excuse me? <laughs> and he says, and he repeated himself. And he said, I said, well, how does that work? Right? And he says, well, it's through a process. It's called uh, normative factors through normative process. Essentially, if we do things in a certain way for a long enough time, the courts will turn around and they'll lean on that and they'll say, this is how it's done. It's commonly accepted. So essentially, we make the laws. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I mean, I run a security related business. We have cameras all through here. So it didn't take long for Minister Blaney to have a copy of that. And it also didn't take long for that firearms officer to be pulled from our account and a nice apology letter to be coming through. But I think, I don't think 
that firearms officer was necessarily speaking on his own behalf. And I think perhaps he spoke with other firearms officers about this normative process. And that might be a common tactic that's used. Tell you what, we will interpret things as we think is fit, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, whether it's for the in with best intentions in mind or the most nefarious intentions. And after a certain amount of time, that just becomes how it's done. And that might right. be what's happening here with this whole, like how hard would it be to put in except 12 and 10 gauge or except right. shotguns? Right. It's, it's easy as pie. The right. thing is, is that the normative process thing you're talking about always works only to their advantage. It never works to yours. Sure. Right. Because if they'll come up with a new normative process in the blink of an eye, if they think they're going to do something to you. That's right. Right. Like, for example, the RCMP creating a whole new measurement system out of thin air. <laughs> but, you know, you can go on to the FRT, and I know you have access to the FRT. Mm-hmm. You can go on the FRT, and you go into the definition section of the FRT, and you look up the definition of bore. Mm-hmm. And it even has a picture. Yeah. It says the interior portion of the barrel from the end of the chamber to the muzzle. That's right. Hmm. (laughs) It makes it it simple. Makes it simple. And CBSA uses the exact same definition. We have it in writing from them. We also have it in writing from them that if you are coming back into Canada with a a 12-gauge shotgun with chokes, you run the risk of having your firearm seized. Interesting. Yes. Now, the second part of of the order in council that is so dangerous is this section called uh, the 10,000 joules of energy. Right. It's dangerous because they used language from the previous Hasselwander decision from 30 years ago. What it says is capable of. Right. One of the big things on the Hasselwander decision was the definition of what capable means. Right. And Hasselwander has been used, by the way, 241 times as precedent case law in Canada. It's now long-standing, old case law, guaranteed to pass the test in court. Mm -hmm. And what Hasselwander said about capable was that the word capable had no qualifier. Capable meant capable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean capable of doing it safely. It doesn't mean capable of doing it twice. Mm -hmm. It means capable. Now, we know that the firearm itself, per se, is the receiver of the gun, right? Right. Right. The barrel is a part, right? Correct. Right. You can take a regular bolt-action rifle. You could unscrew the barrel that's on it. You can change the bolt face. You can screw on a 460 Weatherby barrel. The 460 Weatherby won't work through the action, Mm -hmm. of course, because it's too big. But you can take the bolt out of the back. You can slide one cartridge up through the bolt race, put the bolt back in, and fire it. That's right. And you just prohibited every single Remington Model 700 in all of Canada instantly because it is capable of. It doesn't matter if the rifle blew apart. Well, it doesn't we matter. Can YouTube just do this with a shotgun? 
Well, now the shotgun thing, that 10,000 joules of energy, we put out that video of a guy firing a 12-gauge shotgun. That's a pretty standard-looking shotgun. Mm. But the casing he was using was different. Now, it's a 12-gauge shotgun, but he was using a cut-down 50 BMG case because I know this will astound you, but they fit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? The the 50 50 BMG case said will fit into a 12-gauge perfectly. And he cut down, reamed out a very, very thick brass 50 BMG case, put a 650-grain heeled bullet and mm-hmm. fired it over a chronograph. Now it was in uh, in, in uh, kinetic energy uh, foot pounds, okay. but ten thousand joules is seven thousand three hundred and seventy something foot pounds. Okay, he broke seventy five hundred foot pounds with a twelve gauge shotgun. Right, and holding it in his arms, not tying it to a tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He held it in the arms, and you could shoot it again. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I imagine the recoil would knock you into next month, but oh, I mean. Have some bruising for sure. Oh, yeah, maybe a dislocated shoulder, but that <laughs> doesn't matter. What matters is the Hasselwander world, word of capable. Capable is mm-hmm. capable is capable. So it kind of lands so, us in a bit of a world of hurt here, because we're at the discretion of the regulators, the RCMP in this case to essentially tell us what they feel the law means, and then we kind of have to live by that. Right. As opposed and to reading have, the law and, this, and interpreting it for what it is. If we haven't learned the lesson of RCMP reinterpretation by now, when the <laughs> hell are we ever going to learn it? Mm-hmm. The RCMP have never had a single solitary law that they haven't eventually used against us, have they? Not that I can think of. Right, exactly. And they're going to use these against us too when the time is right. Mm-hmm. So this this is dangerous. People have got to understand how dangerous this is. Okay, they, they, they can ban virtually every centerfire bolt-action rifle in Canada in a sweep of a pen. Well, essentially they already have. They just have to now interpret it that way. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. All those those twelve gauges with removable chokes, you know, uh, Elwood Epps, you know, very respected uh, you know, firearm store. They put out a video measuring an old Ivor Johnson twelve gauge farm gun, single shot break open farm gun. Right. And the interior of the barrel measured twenty point five millimeters. Mm-hmm. While they were filming. They phoned the firearm center, and here's the measurements we just got. Is this gun prohibited? Yes, it is. (laughs) There you go. Okay. There you go. There you go. So it's just a matter of time before they go ahead and use this. Now, you know that they they also created a very, very dangerous workplace hazard in this as well. And um, most of the gunnies didn't pick up on this because it doesn't directly affect them. But there is a, a firearm out there called an 8-gauge blasting gun. Right. And the 8-gauge blasting gun is used by all the road crews that work in Canada that are doing a demolition work, explosives work. And uh, it, it is a critical safety tool for them, and it is considered to be a firearm. But what it does is when they blow a rock face, before the men can go in and, and clean the, the 
fallen rock off away from the rock face, there are big chunks of rock that are just hanging there that didn't blow off in the initial blast. Mm-hmm. They bring out this eight gauge blasting gun. It fires a twenty five hundred grain projectile off of a tripod, but it's basically it's a single shot shotgun. Mm-hmm. And the, the wranglers that use these guns have to have firearms licenses. They have to be stored and transported as firearms, and they are firearms. And what they do is they blow these chunks of rock off the rock face so that the men can safely work down there. They Those just are now prohibited. prohibited. Right. Yeah. Right. How crazy, eh? Well, tell. so the OAC comes through. They say all these guns, they're now bad. Prohibited. You got two years, but these right. guys are prohibited. But since then, that list has grown, hasn't it? 450 guns. We're at 450 now. In secret. So how does that work? They're put down as being variants. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're variants of the existing prohibitions. And uh, you can only imagine that some of the variations of these variants are wildly imaginative. Well, I think this goes full circle to what we are talking at the very beginning on variants. Exactly. Exactly. The, the RCMP has this wish list. The feds have their list. And the RCMP just, just morphs their wish list to fit whatever they think they want to put as a variant. Mm-hmm. And they're never challenged. They're never, ever challenged by the liberals. Because as you know, Ralph Goodell said, we're going to let the RCMP make classifications. I, I even have MPs to this day ask me, where in the Firearms Act or in, in, in their bill, in C-71, does it say, where's the section that says the RCMP get to make the classifications? Yeah, that's it, absolutely it doesn't. It doesn't say that. Absolutely. It's not if there. The person- if the police have special knowledge, if they've got special training, and they've got the ability to interpret things in a way that's going to be useful, use them as a reference. Totally. Use them for totally. guidance. By right. all means, but to put the powers of and decision-making powers for creating the laws in the same hands of the people who are in charge of enforcing them is very, very scary. Do you know what they call that, don't you? I sure do. So, yeah, for, your, for the purposes of your listeners, that's called a police state. That's right. The people who enforce the law make the law. Mm-hmm. And that's a very scary place to be. Democracies don't run that way. No, and, you know, it's a sort of a camel, camel in the tent sort of thing, and maybe it goes back to this normative process as well. Yeah, and, and, and maybe it does. Um, you know, the RCMP have been doing this, but, you know, there's nothing in the Firearms Act anywhere that give the RCMP authority to do this. Mm-hmm. They, they assumed the authority by the creation of the FRT, which also doesn't exist anywhere in legislation. The mm-hmm. FRT is an internal catalog of guns that the RCMP created out of a huge budget that they, money they stole from us. And um, they made this gigantic Oh, but they're going to sell it. They're going to sell it to other countries. That's right. Remember they that story? No, no, What's they that? do sell it. Oh, sure, yeah, but how much money do they make from that? Well, I don't know, but certainly not very much. But uh, I don't think it offsets the cost. Oh, my goodness, no. But what it does, <laughs> allows, it allows the, the RCMP Firearms Lab to be the world authority. That's right. And I, and I guess they probably are right at this particular moment in terms of firearms anyway. 
And um, the, the FRT somehow managed to gain its weight in law, but it has no legal legal basis. It's simply the opinion of a technician. Right. Scary. So anyway, uh, we have long advocated to various governments for the creation of an evaluation committee. The the work that this evaluation committee would not have to do it's not it's not very big because mm-hmm. most firearms come into the country and their classification is self evident. It's a, it's bolt action twenty two. Guess what? It's mm-hmm. not restrictive. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's pretty simple. Most of them are pretty simple. But the ones that are contentious would go in front of this uh, committee of bona fide experts, of which RCMP would be one. So would the Ontario Forensic Center. They've got some incredible people working for them on this stuff. But there are people within the civilian industry, and of course you know who most of them are too, that are every bit as knowledgeable and talented as anybody that the, the, the feds have got, and they don't carry government baggage. Mm-hmm. So you can create a committee that's five or seven people, including your government people. Sure. You, you take the facilities of the RCMP firearms lab and you put them at the disposal of the committee for the purposes of evaluation of firearms. And now you can come up with classifications that all of us can respect. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. So there's lots of things, lots of work to do still, you know. Um, we, we will get rid of this ordinary council uh, when we change government, you know. And, um, you know, as long as the river doesn't rise and everything stays the same, we should be able to get rid of the existing Trudeau government um, as long as he keeps giving money to his mom, you know, our <laughs> money. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I'd like to work out this deal. Do I have to get some money for my mom? <laughs> you know, can I get the government to give me some money for my mom? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice, eh? It would be. It would be. I like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, we, we, we will turn this over eventually. Okay. People have got to be patient because it's not going to happen today. They're not even going to get a court date until the new year hmm. for any of these cases. You know, the 11715 judicial challenges are much simpler. They're, they're much easier to expedite. We think they have a way higher chance of success. Okay. There are some, some larger court cases going out there right now that are going to take years to come to fruition and unbelievable amounts of money. And, and quite frankly, in my opinion, the odds of them succeeding are smaller. Mm-hmm. But um, 117.15, I think, is where the gold is because we can prove the minister's opinion is stupid. You know, and I mentioned that uh, on a podcast previously that I do, I agree with you. I think that's sort of the path that needs to be gone down because legitimate sporting purposes is kind of difficult to argue. Right, especially when you've been giving people ATTs and the, and the MNRs all over the country have been letting people hunt with guns like this, and they've been mm-hmm. successfully harvesting game animals with them. How do you argue that logic? Very difficultly. So, Mind you, I, I remember um, there was one case that I um, was uh, assisting with and um, was uh, the subject matter expert on a uh, on a court case. And it was interesting because we go through the whole process and essentially the big learning point at the end, and I 
would have thought that it should have been maybe evident prior to this, but it really didn't matter what one side or the other side said. It really didn't matter what I said as an expert on it, because everything that I said, I knew to be true. I've done my research. I got to sit in and listen to the other side, say their piece. And I thought, how the heck can they say that and keep a straight face? But really, it didn't matter if the process was followed. Step one, step two, step three in the government came to an erroneous conclusion, but the process was followed properly, the erroneous conclusion stands, is essentially what the judge said at the end. So no matter how we tried to point out that the points that they were making were false, and it was based on flawed logic and based on on, on the wrong information, if they follow the right process to get there, and they just happen to get to a contrary conclusion, that conclusion stands. So that was, that was kind of surprising for me. Yeah, I, I, those are the kind of things that I think surprise everybody when they get into the court process. And, right. You know, you and you and I have both been doing the court process for a long time. As a matter of fact, we should we should also mention we've been on opposite sides of the same court case. <laughs> That's right. We were. We were. Actually, I'm working on one yeah. right now, and I was called up by one side, and not a problem. <laughs> Start off, and they said, "Oh no, we changed our mind. We don't want to proceed." About a week later, the other side phones up. I said, "Hey, just so you know, we've been dealing with the uh, with the other side on it, and uh, I just want to make sure there's no conflict. I, I've got no problem going in and just speaking the truth, being an advocate well, for the court." That's it. I, I do this on a regular basis, like you do, you know. And uh, you go in there, and you you do your best to bring uh, illumination to dark subjects. Agreed. And yeah, and, and you do your best. And uh, like I said, you know, it's, it was fun having you on the opposite side of the the the, uh, the case. But hey, <laughs> we, you know, we we resolved it with good nature and gentlemanly behavior. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> peace and harmony prevailed. Peace and harmony prevailed. That's wonderful. But uh, <laughs> oh, and they settled. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. <laughs> um. Anyway, um, so. This ordering council, there's so much danger in it. The actual list of guns that they've banned, I don't think is near as dangerous as the potential of what they could ban. That's my impression as well. Yeah. And and, and the the people who wrote this are diabolically clever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's fashionable within our community to portray these people as, as stupid. They're, They're not, not stupid. They, they appear stupid. Yeah, no, no, they're not. They're not stupid at all, no, not by any stretch of the imagination. Right, and, and neither are our enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, Wendy Suk here, I don't know if you've ever done a couple of laps in the ring with her, but um, Wendy Suk here is a very, very smart person, and mm -hmm. she's very well informed on firearms issues. And In fact, I, I really found that out in spades when uh, I started working in the United Nations in 1998. Okay. On gun on gun issues, and I know that because I got my ID badges all the way back to 1998. <laughs> and and at that time, Wendy Sukir and Murray Smith were both very active in the UN context, and it was really illuminating to see them in action. They really truly are not stupid people. Mm -hmm. Evil maybe, but not stupid. Agenda driven. Yep. 
so uh you know we we need to get people to recognize uh you know your viewers to recognize that there is a lot more in this order and council they've got to fight this order and council the most effective way they can do it is get this trudeau government the hell out of office mm. you know we we have we have uh our leadership convention coming up for the conservative party don't misunderstand me I'm not a show for the Conservative Party by any stretch of the imagination, but they're the ones who support the firearms agenda for us. Right. So we have to recognize that right now they're the only game in town. Mm-hmm. We are going to have some bad blood because we've got some gunnies that support different candidates, and whoever wins this, we have to get behind. Right. Because the worst Conservative candidate they got is infinitely better than Justin Trudeau. Agreed. Yeah, we got to win this next election. It's going to come sooner than later, I think. You know, um, I, I think when you and I were talking in January um, at, the, at that reception, I think that uh, we talked about the fact then that I, that I believe that Trudeau was going to bail early and pull the pin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still think that. I still think that. I, I think it might be imminent. Right now, for him, it's a great way to get out of this wee mess, the wee charity thing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and he's got all the money socked away for his mom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we've we've definitely touched on the OIC. I think we've gotten some of the bigger, broad brushstrokes out there. I think the audience, if they have further questions on it, I mean, call the CSSA, look at their website, look at joining... You guys have been the longest standing, largest organization fighting for firearms rights for Canadians for a very, very long time. Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up here? Well, I, I think we, we should recognize that not everyone in government is our enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a tool in the government called the Parliamentary Outdoors Caucus Association. Okay. It's the largest nonpartisan caucus on Parliament Hill. It consists of members from every uh, political party. They have to have a common interest in the mandate of the Outdoors Caucus, which is angling, hunting, sport shooting, trapping. Okay. Okay. And the co-chair is a liberal. And... Um, very nice lady. There's there's several liberals that are in that caucus that support our goals and aims. Not everybody's our enemy, and uh, you know they they have to toe the party line when the whip comes around, but that doesn't mean they're not fighting on our behalf in the background. Mm-hmm. So people have got to remember that, that there's no such thing as any political party that's totally evil right. or totally good. There are conservatives that do not support our goals and aims. But fortunately, they're few and far between. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because it's really, really easy to paint the opposition as the enemy. And that's one of the silliest things you can do if you really want to try and understand if the person is your enemy, understand them, get in their head, think of where they're coming from. One thing I've found is people say, well, aren't these guys terrible? Isn't this group terrible? And I from years of experience no i I think people are lazy in general you're going to have a handful of people out there that are terrible 
you're going to have a handful of people out there that are really, really good, but the majority are just going to go the easy path. We're all animals. Yep. It's like game animals. That's why we have game trails. Like like to go down the easy path, right? And a few terrible right. people will do something. A few good people will really shine, but most of them will just go with whatever's easy. And when something like this comes through and you're dealing with different politicians or you're dealing with the RCMP on it, they're civil servants. They go home at the end of the day. They try their best not to bring any of this baggage home with them. And what's easy? I know. Just toe the line. So sure. It's... And, you know, many of the, the simple serpents are also extremely motivated politically. The, oh, very much so. The left has infiltrated the, the civil service to a point where sometimes it's difficult to see the forest for the trees. Thank you very much for giving me your time. I really appreciate you speaking to me and speaking to the listeners and helping educate us on this very important matter. Thank you, Tony. Oh, my, my pleasure, Travis. And, and anytime we can do it again. And, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it helps people understand the situation that we're in, then, then that's great. I'm happy to do it.